The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. That's my prayer this morning. It's for Christ to be seen. Let's bow in prayer. Eternal Father, show us Christ. Show us Christ. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, which is present wherever your people are, show us Christ. The one who became flesh and dwelt among us, the one that was beheld, the one that was touched, the one that was seen, the one that was rejected, the one that was beaten, the one that was crucified, the one that died, the one that was buried, the one that rose again, was glorified and ascended. Show us this Christ today. Show us the Christ that one day will return in the same way that he departed, he will return Show us this Christ. And we will be changed. Amen. In the first service, I had the liberty of, or the, not the liberty, I took the liberty (laughs) of pointing out my uh, parents being in attendance, and uh, it was an honor to have them here this morning. Um, the, uh, I, I want to thank you for those of you who um, responded in, in prayer support for my dad. Uh, he was in a rough state a couple of months back, and uh, to have them here today was a miracle, and that's uh, a testament to your faith and your prayer, so thank you. Um, my wife and I are celebrating our 25th anniversary this afternoon, and... Uh, yeah. And thanks to these two uh, right over in the corner here, our children, Alex and Brittany, they're, uh, they're putting on quite the do for us, so uh, thank you. Um, the, the applause should actually go to my wife, though, <laughs> for putting up with this guy. Seriously. Okay. She's, uh, she's a wonderful woman. If you haven't gotten to know Barb, um, I encourage you to get to know her because she is an amazing woman. She really is, and I love her dearly. And uh, I hope that God gives us another 25 years. My parents this summer, quick calculation, are celebrating, God willing, their 62nd anniversary. So uh, they're... Uh, God continues to grant them life, and uh, we're thankful for that. It was January the 1st, 1863, and the ink was drying on the freshly penned Emancipation Proclamation, issued from the presidential office of Abraham Lincoln. The declaration read, in part, that all persons held as slaves, shall be then, thenceforward, 
and forever free. Though declared by the president, it freed few, if any, at that time, because they were in the middle of the Civil War. The Civil War that nearly tore the United States apart and left three-quarters of a million American men dead on the battlefield. It was not until the 13th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified on December 18, 1865, that slavery and involuntary servitude was legally abolished. And I have to wonder that as the news spread across the country and began to fall on the ears of the slaves, what was their reaction? To be sure, there were some that immediately packed their bags and took the first train out of Dodge. No doubt. Some would have doubted the validity of the news, having been captive for so long. Others may not have heard for a very long time, since they didn't have smartphones back then, Others may not have heard for a very long time if the truth was being withheld from them. Still others, gripped by the fear of the unknown, may not have left the plantations at all. For if they had known, but they had been born into slavery, to act on the truth may have been more frightening than to stay where they were. They had to wrestle with believing the truth and acting upon it. We've been studying the Word of God in the Gospel of John for the last seven weeks, and today we've arrived at chapter 8. And one theme should be coming clearer and clearer as we walk through the Gospel of John, and that is the repeated use of the word belief or believing over and over again. In chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it is clearly recorded by John the purpose that he wrote the gospel. And it says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that through the act of believing, that life comes to be. This is critical to understand as we delve into chapter 8 today. The act of believing and the focus upon which that believing is grounded upon is absolutely essential to life. As we'll find out, um, that if we believe and place our trust in the truth, the source of all truth, divine truth, that the truth will set us free. And that by being set free by the Son, we are free indeed. But first, I think it's wise for it to take us a few minutes to define belief. To define what does it mean to believe? Is it different from faith? So I turned to a modern source of definition, and I Googled it. I Googled belief, 
and it came up with acceptance that a statement is true. And faith as complete trust or confidence in something or someone. Good definitions, but they fall short, I believe, of the biblical definition. For they can simply end in a mental assent to an idea, and mental acknowledgement to a statement. Biblical believing and faith calls us to action. When God calls us to believe, the notarizing of that mental agreement is affirmed by action, by following through. It's confirmed by obedience. Let me give you an example. Today when you came in here, you all took a step of faith based upon previous experience, but you sat down on a pew that most likely not one of you was involved in manufacturing it. Right? Just like this chair. Now, I sat on it in the first service, so I can't say I never sat on this before. But before then, I didn't think I sat on it. Maybe I have, downstairs. But it looks like a chair. It looks similar to other chairs that I've sat on. Maybe it's got some good welds on it. Maybe I should check for a CSA stamp of approval that it's, it's worthy of sitting on. So I've made an, a mental assessment, and I believe, yeah, that chair will hold me. But unless I take the act of faith and commit the immediate future of my backside and actually sit on the chair, it's not faith. Likewise, John presents us with Jesus. We can make a mental assessment of agreement to his teaching. And as we will see today, there were many who already agreed with his teaching and were following him. Did Jesus have credibility? Absolutely he had credibility. He'd been turning water into wine. He declared the secret life of the, the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. He was healing the lame man beside the Bethesda pool. He fed 5,000 men besides women and children with five loaves, two fishes. He walked on water. There was credible evidence that he could be believed. However, if not followed by action, is it real faith? Am I and are you willing to take him at his word and stake our very lives, our very eternity upon him? Turning to the text today, if you will, and if you are able to, would you stand with us as we turn to John chapter 8, just from verse 31 to 36. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Thank you. You may be seated.
In our few minutes together, I want us to take a quick, very quick run through the chapter. It begins with an incredible story of Jesus extending grace to the Samaritan woman. Or, sorry, not to the Samaritan woman, to the woman caught in adultery. Then it moves on into a discourse from verse 12 right through to the end of the chapter. And that picks up actually directly from where Doug left us off last week at the end of chapter 7. Jesus is still in the temple, and it's during the Feast of Tabernacles, that week-long feast that celebrates God's provision, miraculous provision, after he had led them out of Egypt. From verse 12 to the end of the chapter, Jesus is extending his offer of salvation beyond the increasingly hostile Jewish audience around him to the world and to whomever will receive him. In the first half of this chapter, he reiterates the fact that those who are hostile to him are from this world and therefore cannot receive him or cannot follow him. But the second half of this chapter gets explosively heated in a discourse as Jesus exposes the faith of those who appear to be following him as phony faith. And those very followers are the ones who pick up stones to stone him. The great shock is this, that God's historic and chosen people seem incapable of genuine growing faith that would lead them to acknowledge and confess their sin and receive Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Christ, the one foretold by the prophets of old. They neither listen to Moses, as we saw in chapter 7, nor are they followers of Abraham, as in chapter 8 that we'll see. By their response Jesus te- to Jesus' teaching, they prove they are not God's people, children of Abraham but rather children of the devil. You may have heard of the book How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Jesus was definitely not winning friends in this chapter, but he definitely was influencing people. You'll find the sermon notes in your bulletin if you want to uh, follow along for... for, uh, Four divisions in this, in this chapter this morning. Jesus shows compassion to the sinner in that first section. The woman caught in adultery and brought before him by the Jewish leaders and thrown at his feet. But is there any condemnation towards her? No. Jesus does not condemn her. Jesus never condemns Sinners that are honest about their sin. He only extends mercy to her. Incredible mercy. Incredible mercy. Jesus begins the discourse in verse 12 that covers the rest of the chapter with an opening declaration. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This declaration, I am the light of the world, is the second of seven I am statements in the book of John. 
Two weeks ago, Pastor Doug spoke about the first one where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. By this opening of self-declaration to be the light of the world, Jesus was declaring himself as fulfilling the promise of Isaiah 42. Isaiah in chapter 42 is a servant who would bring light to the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from dungeon those who sit in darkness. When Jesus began his ministry and he opened the scroll in the synagogue and declared from Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for captives, and freedom or release from darkness for the prisoners. As the light of the world, Jesus offers freedom for the people of God and sight for the blind. But this crowd and the Jewish leaders that were around him rejected both messages and therefore were blinded by the light. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God of this world has blinded their minds. And as this discourse progresses, there are statements and declarations of identification and arguments set by set forth by both sides. Jesus exposes truth and lies. He is the light of the world, and light exposes what is hidden in the darkness. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me. This is an act of obedience. In believing that Jesus is trustworthy, then acting on that trustworthiness by following. I am going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Jesus expands this even further a few moments later by adding, you are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed Die in your sins. Jesus begins to make it painfully clear that there will come a great cost to them and to each of us that we will be left in a desperate state if we do not believe in him. They respond, who are you? You just hear the sarcasm on the page. Who are you? No one talks like this. What you're claiming is an equal standing with God. Jesus responds that he is just who he has been claiming to be all along. And that when he is lifted up, it will become much, much clearer to all. Of course, this was only a slightly veiled description of how he would be crucified not long down the road. They, like us, are in desperate need of rescue. The ignorance of God's people can only be dealt with at the cross. And once they have crucified him, then it will become clear that he was 
who he was claiming to be. A very interesting descriptor begins the intense discourse that finishes this chapter. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said. Now this phrase got me as I was preparing this message. Because it's extremely troubling. The language that follows for the rest of the chapter gets so intense, so surgical by Jesus and so troubling because it says he's addressing it to those who believed in him, not to the unbelievers. I believe, however, that Jesus' approach and his tone through the rest of this was one of complete mercy. He was being completely good and gracious in stripping away phony faith. It has been said that truth hurts. It certainly does. It also clarifies and it also enables. It also frees. Let's continue. Jesus declares, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Now, Jesus knows all things. He knew exactly what their reactions and responses were going to be. It was almost a yearning. It was almost a yearning in this passage. If you hold to my teaching, to hold, to trust, to hang on, to believe in him and his words as he begins a surgery on the foundation of their very faith. To hold is defined as to keep, to carry, to grasp, or to detain. The Greek word translated here for hold is also used in chapter 15 where Jesus says, abide in me, remain in me. It is a picture of holding on for dear life. To follow Jesus, to hold to his words, the truth, and to never let go. To never let go and to stake your life on it. If you hold to my teaching, even when my teaching proves to be as searching and, a, and as uncomfortable as it is here, then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's an odd response that follows here. The people answer, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. Hmm. I don't know, I don't think you have to be much of a biblical historian to remember something about 400 years in Egypt, 70 years in exile, how about perhaps the current crushing Roman rule that they lived under? It's, a, it's an odd statement. But Jesus was not referring to external circumstances, but to the internal condition of their hearts. They, like us, serve an involuntary servitude to sin until we come to know the truth and it sets us free. Look at Jesus' reply. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. The ESV translates it this way. Everyone who practices sin 
to whom it becomes a lifestyle is a slave to sin. They could not accept the unpalatable truth about their own sinfulness. Their need to be rescued. But Jesus knew their hearts and began to show that their faith was not genuine as evidenced by their actions. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my truth. No room. I am telling you what I have seen in my Father's presence, and you do what you've heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they respond. Tension's rising. If you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. Notice the play on words. Two verses earlier. I know you were Abraham's descendants. Now he's saying, if you were Abraham's children. Yes, they were physically DNA descendants of Abraham. They were from that lineage. Just as God is the father of all mankind, yet we are not his children until we first make his son our Lord. They were faced with the truth exposing false security based on lineage. Being born Jewish does not equate to being in an eternally secure relationship with God. You do, you do not belong to him just by ancestry or supposed right. A good godly heritage of your family line does not save you. My parents both became followers of Christ when they were in their teens. But that didn't do me any good. It's a good godly heritage, but I had to come to Christ. Going to church and being an active member does not make you a Christian no more than standing in a garage makes you a car. The conversation gets even more harsh. Jesus says, you are doing the things your own father does. They respond, the only father we have is God himself. Really? You want to claim God is your father while at the same time rejecting his son? Jesus asked them a redundant question. Why is my language not clear to you? He answers it. Because you cannot hear what I say. You cannot bear what I say. You cannot bear the truth. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer and liar from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. He speaks lies. That is his native language. He's the father of lies. Why don't you believe me? Another redundant question. He answers, even though I tell you the truth, he who belongs to God hears what God says. You do not hear because you do not belong to God. Listen carefully. This is very important. While Jesus was saying these things face to face with people who were already professing faith. It is the same gospel that both births our faith in the first place 
that also sustains the Christian later on. That is why he emphasizes, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Will the faith of these followers hold genuine? They lash right back to him and accuse him of being demon-possessed. Jesus rebuts the insults and instead turns and offers eternal life to anyone who keeps his words. If you If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. They reply, Abraham died and so did the prophets. Are you greater than Abraham? Who do you think you are? Now the sarcasm is blatant. Jesus replies, my father, whom you claim as your God, will glorify me. You don't know him, but I do. If I said not, I didn't, I'd be a liar like you. In fact, your father Abraham rejoiced at seeing the promise of the prophecy of me being fulfilled. To which they reply, you're not even 50 years old and you saw Abraham? Then Jesus delivers the strongest claim to divinity in all the book of John when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. To a monotheistic people, for a man to claim equality with God, if it wasn't true, was blasphemy. And they picked up stones to stone him. When Jesus used the words, before Abraham was born, I am, he is using the very same name, that God described himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. God was calling Moses to go and to free his people, and he said, whom shall I say is sending me? And God replied, tell them, I am has sent me to you. Jesus, by using this name, is saying, I am the self-existent one. I am God, the creator and sustainer of all mankind. I am the eternal one. I am the immutable, unchangeable God. So we are faced. We are faced with the truth of Jesus. The original audience was going to stone him. We have the option to either believe and live or reject and be lost for eternity. Which do you want? Are you a sinner in need of a compassionate savior? like the woman caught in adultery? Do you want the light of life to pierce the darkness of your heart? Do you want the truth to set you free from a prison of sin that you've been locked in forever? Will you come to the eternal I am today? Genuine faith is a matter of accepting one's total 
inability to provide for one's own rescue. The acknowledgement of involuntary servitude to sin and total dependence upon the Son to set one free. Genuine faith perseveres to the end. It means holding on to Jesus' teaching, however uncomfortable it at times may seem to be. The truth of this message that comes out of this text today did not fall far from these ears. Back in 2009, I knew I was dying. I knew I was dying from a life of secret sin and of ignorance to God's commands. I knew I was dying. And God, by His grace, by His grace, though it didn't feel like it at the time, was bringing me to the end of myself. And on February 17, 2010, the answer came to a prayer that I prayed in the fall. God, no matter the cost, no matter the road, no matter the pain, no matter the risk of loss, I can't go on. Please change me. And in his mercy, he answered that. And on that day, I died. And that same day, I began to live. And he offers you that very same mercy. As Kevin and the worship team come, Whatever your situation is in your life, perhaps the Holy Spirit has touched something in your heart this morning. Whatever that response may look like for you, perhaps it is being in silent prayer in the pew as as the worship team leads us. Perhaps it's slaying shame and pride and responding publicly and joining me at the front. Whatever it is this morning, I invite, I invite all of us to make this a place of prayer this morning, a place of responding to the Holy Spirit. Let's do that now, I pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your infallible and unfaltering word. Thank you for your powerful, compassionate, and very intimate to us, Holy Spirit. I thank you that when your spirit opens your word of truth, that those words never, ever fall short. I thank you that you are working in people's hearts right now as response to your word because of your Holy Spirit. And I know that that's true because this morning, in both services this morning, you've been working in me. And I trust that you are working in other hearts right now as well. All of us are aware of our sin. All of us are aware of the things that we cling to that are not you. All of us are aware of of the ways that 
The lives that we live do not reflect who you are. And all of us long, especially when you open that longing in us, we long for freedom. We long to be free. We long to be able to live in such a way that desires you first and foremost and at the center of everything. We long to live that way. There are hearts in this room that are longing to live that way, and there are other hearts in this room that are longing to long to live that way. And I pray that you would bless all of those kinds of hearts with an answer to that longing. And I pray that whatever it is that needs to be, that we need to be set free from, maybe it's sin in the first place, maybe Maybe there are those who have never given their life to you, who have never submitted their sin to the living and risen Christ. And for those, God, I pray that you would make yourself known. And there are many, many more, I think, who have known you a long time, but long to be closer to you and long to be freed from the sin that keeps them back from that. Help us to have our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ Help us to shake off the sin that hinders us and encumbers us. May we come to you with open hearts right now, maybe at the end of this service for those who might want to come forward for prayer, or just in the hearts that leave this room, that you would continue to work so that you would be known more deeply, so that you would be reflected more brightly, and that you would be honored more greatly. Our wonderful Lord and Jesus Christ, the one who deserves all, all glory and power and honor and praise. We pray this in his name. Amen.